you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4, as we continue in our study of the book of Acts. Lord, as we come before you once again, thank you for the fact that one day we have something to look forward to. The fact that we will rise one day because of you if we know you as our Savior. For those of us who put our faith and trust in you, Lord, there is no greater hope. And I pray, God, that you would help us to realize that and to live victorious lives because of that. To live purpose-filled life because of that. Pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. May we learn from your word this morning. May we apply it to our hearts and our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you notice where we left off last week. Uh, we watched the confidence of Peter and John as they stood boldly before the Sanhedrin and before the uh, temple policemen and the temple guards and the, all the who's who in the religious circles of their world. And not only defending what they had seen God do, but boldly letting them know the one and only source of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's amazing how we, you know, talk to different people around us and they have the idea, well, there's a lot of different religious uh, religions, there's a lot of different denominations, there's a lot of different, you know, backgrounds that, you know, they're all going somewhere, but they're all going to end up in the same place. Well, if that were only true. And the reality is it doesn't really matter. I've said been saying it for 20 years. I don't care whether you're a Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, Lutheran, Church of God, Church of Christ and you know, one of the other 4,000 other registered denominations, the idea that, you know, you can become part of a church or a denomination or join a religion or do something that you can earn merit whereby you can enter heaven is a farce. The reality is it all comes down to have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and do you have a relationship with him? That's where it all starts, in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I hate to say it, but there are going to be some people who are going to get to heaven one day and they're going to come before Jesus and stand before him and he's going to say, why should I enter you, allow you to enter into heaven? And some of us are going to say, well, we did good things. We, we gave to the church and we helped out the poor. And, and he's going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. But the reality is, the question is, do you know Jesus Christ? Not just in your head, not just all kinds of facts and information and knowledge about him. Do you truly know him and have a relationship with him? That's what really matters, amen? That's what really matters. Do you know him? Have you put your faith and trust in him? And he wasn't, Peter and, and, and John were not afraid to stand boldly before all the Sanhedrin and all the chief priests and all the religious people and the scribes and to basically stand boldly and confidently say, there's only one Jesus. And he said, there is not salvation in any other name given among men whereby you must be saved. The name of Jesus, Acts 4.12, where we left off. And John reminds us in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. It kind of blows away the whole idea that there are many ways to Jesus. There's only one way. There's only one way to heaven. Only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many, way, many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there be few who find it. There's always a greener path, so, so people think. If I just go over here to this job, it's going to be better. If I go over there, you know, the grass is greener. I'm going to have better pay, better benefits, better position, you know, more authority, more power, you know, whatever. We can justify it. You know, people do the same thing in churches. They do the same thing in religious and, and, and in spiritual matters, or at least they try to. You know, I'm going to do it this way. He says, no, he says, the narrow path is the one that leads to Jesus, and it's the hard one. 
There is sacrifice. I've been saying it for years. Any commitment worth making will require sacrifice, right? I mean, if, it's, if, if you're going to make a commitment and it doesn't require you to sacrifice anything, I don't have to sacrifice my time, my energy, my effort, my money. If it doesn't require any sacrifice, it's probably not a commitment worth making. The reality is any commitment worth making will require sacrifice. And as we see this in Acts chapter 4, verses 13 and following, you know, there's a great story here. And it's so amazing. We went from all the, if you want to say the, the technical doctrinal things in the first couple chapters, and all of a sudden we get to these stories that you and I can apply to our lives. And it seems like for several weeks now, and you go from text to text to text, and he's still on this idea of the beggar who got saved, who got healed. And, 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 and the, the religious crowd around them, they can't quite handle it. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know what to, how to respond to what they've seen. And so as we come into this story, it doesn't change, change anything. It's still going on, and they're still upset because they didn't get the glory from it. I mean, they wanted all the power, all the authority, all the, you know, the who's who amongst the religious crowd. I mean, the chief priests, the scribes, and so forth. And they don't know quite how to handle it. So let's look at the story through bullet points. First of all, in verse 13, it says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and comprehended that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Man, that is so awesome. As first of all, it says Peter and John were confident. As we saw last week, can you imagine just for a moment going to the who's who in the world of today and stand before them and say, listen, I know you guys are religious. I know that you think you guys are spiritual. But the reality is you're lost, you're wrong, and you don't know what you're talking about. Because that's basically what Peter and John did. And he said, I mean, they're coming before. Remember, the Sanhedrin didn't even believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. I mean, they're, I mean, from the get-go, they're believing false theology and false doctrine, and, and they're upset that Peter and John are even a, you know, approaching that. They're, they're, they're angry at them. But they, weren't, they didn't even believe it. But this whole idea of confidence means that there's freedom. The whole idea here, Scripture, is that where there's confidence, there's freedom. In other words, I'm going to stand up boldly before you, and I'm going to proclaim the truth with complete freedom, and I don't have to worry about what you're going to do about it. And that's exactly what they did. They stood up confidently and boldly because they had the Holy Spirit working in and through them. And I dare say that if we felt like we had the Holy Spirit living within us, we would have more freedom. We would have more confidence. And we would be boldly stand before people that we know need to hear the truth, but we're too afraid that they might not like us. They might not like what I say, and they might not want to hang out with us anymore. And they might not want to you know, do lunch anymore if they know that I'm really one of those Christian people. Man, if we had the Holy Spirit living within us, which we claim if we know Jesus, we do have within us, if we really acted like that, we would too would have that freedom to stand up for what we know is truth. In fact, it's amazing that in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, it says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. My goodness. If that doesn't give us confidence, I don't know what will. He says the righteous. So if you're living a righteous life and you're trying to please God in your day-to-day actions and reactions, he says you'll have the boldness of a lion. He says the righteous have the boldness of a lion. Man. I didn't get into the text yet that. So first of all, they were confident. Number two, they were considered to be uneducated and ordinary. And the whole idea in this day and age with being uneducated is that they're illiterate. If you were to give them some book and say, hey, read it, they would probably, uh, not they, uh, 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 z- 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 that's the idea. They hadn't been trained. Classically, they didn't have the schooling that you and I had the opportunities to take, take part in. Uneducated, unlearned. 
And the idea behind ordinary is that they were untrained and unskilled. And when you think about it, what were the only skills they had? They were tradesmen. I'm sure if you give them a pair of pliers and a screwdriver, they know what to do with it in today's vernacular. But give them a book, not so much. Thank God, that was me. Um, I like hands-on stuff. I like, I like, that's how I learn, right? So the reality is, when you look at them, they're saying, well, that shouldn't be coming out of their mouth. That's not typical for a, a guy who's not been educated, who's probably illiterate, has been untrained and doesn't have a whole lot of skills working with people, and yet he has the boldness and the confidence and the freedom to speak before the religious leadership of his day with authority. And then when you look at the same verse, the Sanhedrin marveled. They were amazed by them. They didn't know what to, what to do. They didn't know how to respond to what they were witnessing. And the Sanhedrin knew that they had been with Jesus. Can you imagine? That is probably like one of the greatest phrases in all the New Testament. Just, there's so many good phrases. But if you were just to take one and say, concerning your life and your reputation and your testimony and what people know of you, can they say that, man, I know they've been with Jesus? How many of you know somebody like that? I, man, I, I tell you, when I was around Garland Cofield, one of my missionary mentors, uh, when I was in junior high, he, uh, I felt like the guy walked on, on clouds, man. I, the, nobody could touch him. He was just awesome. But I, when I was with him, I just felt like I was in the presence of God. And when he spoke, you just listened. You shut your mouth and listened. Because God just spoke through him. And he was amazed at me. But can you imagine that for someone to look at our lives and say, you know, they're not really maybe the richest people in the world. They're not really most, you know, the, they don't have the social eliteness. They don't have the, the clout that other people have. They, in fact, they didn't go to the, the best college or university. And, in fact, I don't, I don't even know if they got a GED or not. The bottom line is they're not really skilled. But, goodness, they've been with Jesus. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that, how many would love that to be said of you? That would be incredible. For people to look at and say, well, I knew they were with Jesus. But here's the thing. Who is Jesus? He is authoritative and powerful. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You know, when you look at the scribes, they were religious. In fact, they were usually from upper class, wealthier families. And what was their job as scribes? They were not only just transferring Scripture, but they were the ones that were considered to be knowledgeable in the legal aspects of the law. They were considered to be people who are well-educated. And they said, he's not like the, the scribes. He's, he's above that. He's one who speaks with authority. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. <coughs> so, is it really a bad thing to realize that they've been with Jesus? No, because what they were being challenged with and taught through the presence of Jesus was authority. And that I think a little bit of that, uh, I don't know, power that was on Jesus was rubbing off on these guys and they were just speaking up boldly. But look at verses 14 through 18. Let me read these. It says, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had offered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they began to confer with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy sign has happened through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But lest it spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak uh, no, no longer in, 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 to any man in, in this name. 
And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. When you think about this, I mean, they were really upset. So the Sanhedrin stood speechless. The man who was healed was real. It wasn't just a figment of someone's imagination. This wasn't just a a made-up name that they wanted to make a a spectacle of. This was a man that had been sitting there in the streets that people recognized on a daily basis that had been healed. The The very fact that it says, we don't know what to do with this. They weren't getting no, no, no press, as it were. Nobody was talking about what the Sanhedrin was doing. Nobody was talking about what the chief priests were doing. Nobody was talking about the, what the scribes were doing. They were talking about what had happened in Peter and John's presence, that a man had been healed, and they couldn't deny it. That's amazing. And so they ordered Peter and John to leave and began to talk amongst themselves. They don't know what to do with them. They say, well, just get out of here. Just just go. Just just get out of our city. Just keep Just keep walking. I mean, that's basically the only thing they knew to do. They had nothing to, to, to confront them with other than this one was healed and we don't know what to do about it. Really, it comes down to a lot of pride and jealousy. They wanted all the attention. They weren't getting it. So they ordered Peter and John to leave and they began to talk amongst themselves. And they had no idea how to respond to what they were seeing. And think about this. They said a noteworthy miracle had taken place. It was noteworthy. I mean, this was something to pay attention to. And if you notice why, it was witnessed by all Jerusalem. He said, this is in the presence of not just us as the leadership of the church, so to speak. All of Jerusalem had seen this. I mean, this, this is not something that can be hid. This is not just something that we can dismiss or discredit. It was in the presence of everybody. And wanting Peter and John's ministry to stop, the Sanhedrin commanded them to stop speaking in Jesus' name. And I think really it comes down to the fact that they really did hate Jesus. How do I know that? Well, in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, it says, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be, what? Exposed. They didn't like the idea that Here's a man, here's two men, Peter and John, who are preaching about what Jesus had done, and they're not going to shut up about it. Let me just draw a little point of application here. If Jesus has done something in your life, he's answered prayer. Let me let me get more basic. He has saved you from hell. He has given you a relationship with him because you put your faith and trust in him. Is that not noteworthy? And then the fact that day by day he allows you to wake up every morning after having slept in a nice warm bed under a roof and having clothes on your body and having food in your stomach, is that not noteworthy that he does this day after day after day? Is it not noteworthy that when you pray and ask God for mercy and grace and love and kindness and provision and protection that he does this day after day, is that not noteworthy? So why don't we talk about it? I'm guilty. I really am. I'm not going to sit up here and condemn you for not telling your testimony and your story for everyone. I need to work on this. I'm working on this. I'm trying to change this. I'm asking God for opportunities. But I have to believe that if God is doing noteworthy things in our lives, we should not keep silent about it. We should be talking about it. Amen? Let's make it a point. Let's plan to do it. Let's, let's ask God for opportunities. As he sent out the, 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 the disciples in Acts 1, he says, what? You have been what? Given 
power, Acts 1.8. 2 Timothy 2, he says, I've not given you the spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. God says, I'll give you what you need to do what you need to do for me and my glory. The question is, are we willing to do it? But they hated Jesus so much that they said, hey, we can't have Peter and John going around telling everybody about this. I mean, after all, they're getting all the press. Everybody's turning to them. I mean, mean, think about this. They were taken and put in jail just for a night, and everybody's gathered around Solomon's porch. I mean, the people are gathering from all over to hear because they had... They had witnessed this. This wasn't just no, some no-namer sitting on it. This is, a, this is somebody that they passed by on a regular daily basis, and they noticed that his life had changed. They couldn't deny it. It was noteworthy. All of Jerusalem heard about it. The word was out. And look at verses 19 and 20 in our text. It says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. He says, you want to judge whether or not I should keep my mouth shut? You go ahead and judge it. Say what you want. Think what you want. I don't care. John, do you care? No, I don't care either. I mean, they were going to stand up and stand up and just you know tell what they had seen God do. They didn't care what people thought. They especially didn't care what the religious crowd thought. They were willing to stand up for what they knew was right. He says, but we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And I fear that for so many believers around the world, those first days of trusting in Jesus are exciting days. You know, at first they're like willing to talk to the family and the friends, and after a while it becomes commonplace. And five years later, you, nobody knows that you're even a believer because we quit talking about it. it happens. We don't mean for it to happen. We don't, certainly don't plan to just, well, we're going to be excited for a while and then we're just going to shut up. It just happens. It, the, the complacency and the contentment just kind of settles in and we forget about what Jesus has done. I think we can never forget because it's noteworthy. It's worth talking about. It's a miracle in your life. You know, I've said for many years, you know, the, the miracle of salvation. God saves some people out of some things. He saves some people from some things. But the miracle is that He saves I didn't have to go through being an alcoholic and a druggie or a, you know, whatever else to, to, to see the miracle of God. I, I got saved as a young child. God spared me from some of those things. But the reality is God saved me. Is that not a miracle? Is that not a spectacular, noteworthy thing that God has done for many of us in this room, maybe? So we should be excited about that. That He loves you enough. You, if you're the only one, God loves you enough to send His Son to die on a cross to offer you salvation. That's noteworthy. And that should change how we live. He says, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen. So Peter and John would not stop preaching the truth. You know, this has kind of been a a, a theme for Peter. You know, Peter was not anti-government. Peter wasn't going to, you know, just say, well, you know, stick it to the government. I don't really care what they think. Peter was a man who followed the law. And how do I know that? 1 Peter 2. Uh, it says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or, or, or to those who are sent by him for punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vi- or vice, 
But as bond servants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So Peter was not anti-government. Peter was not just going to say, well, I'll stick it to the king. I don't really care. I don't really care what you think. Peter was one to follow the law, except where it contradicted what God has asked us to do. That's the line. When, when the government says you can't do this and God's word says to do it, there's the line. But until that line is there, we need to follow. And he says, by your deeds, by your actions, by your obedience, you are a living testimony of one who loves God. There are people all around the world who are anti-government and anti-this. And trust me, they're not my favorite organization. God only, but God did make three organizations. He made the family, he made the government, and he made what? The church. Church is my favorite. Family is the second one. But government, eh, it's in there, but we've got to honor it. God gave it to us. And he says, by it, by doing what's right, by following it, you're going to show your testimony and love for God. So Peter was not anti-government, but he did say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, he says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. He says, listen, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to stand up for God. And if they threaten me, big deal. They throw me in jail, big deal. They whip me, big deal. The bottom line is, he says, I'm not going to let government thwart what God wants me to do. I'm not going to let mankind thwart. I'm certainly not going to let the chief priests and the scribes and, and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, I'm, not going to, I'm certainly not going to let them dictate what I do. I'm going to do what's right. You know, the sad part in our generation is that we have the total freedom here in America. I mean, we have complete freedom to talk to anybody you want to. They may not like it, but it's not like we're going to go out on Cockins Road, knock on the door, and get thrown in jail for it. They may not want you there, but we have freedom. And yet we do nothing most often. We're afraid of people that we'll probably never see again. People who probably we'll never talk to again. But we let our fear or what we think might happen, dictate what we do. Peter and John said, nope. <laughs> you want to judge whether or not I should keep my mouth shut? Go ahead and judge, but I, I cannot stop speaking. Can't. In fact, <laughs> he says, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all evil kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The bottom line is, he says, listen, they're going to... Just know that if they persecute you, they persecuted me first. Expect it. But the reality is, this is not your home. And if they kill you... Guess what? You graduate, you get to celebrate, you're going to heaven. What did Paul say? For to me to live is Christ, and to what? Die is gain. I mean, who wants to stick down here forever? Not me. I mean, I don't have a death wish, but I'm ready to go. Bottom line is, if he calls me home tonight, I'm ready to go. Bottom line is, I can't wait for it. We have nothing to fear in this life. We have it so easy, so good. And yet we walk in fear when it comes to religious things or spiritual matters. 
We have complete freedom, and yet we're afraid to open our mouth. Verses 21 and 22 in our text. The Sanhedrin finally let them go. It says, And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. I mean, can you imagine this just for a moment? Think about this. I mean, they were in jail for a night. They were let out, and they basically put them in an interrogation circle where all the chiefs, priests, the scribes, the temple guards, whatever, all around them, they're in the center. They have to give an offense of what they're doing and why. They're threatened not to you know, open their mouth anymore. I mean, everything that they had gone through, it's just like it didn't phase them. I mean, it didn't. And finally, they're just like, well, we're just going to threaten them some more and send them on their way. They threatened them and let them go. Why? Because they had no basis to hold them or punish them. And what do they do? They go out rejoicing. I don't know about you, but that probably wouldn't have been my first first, uh, you know, response. Like, dude, we just barely made it out of there alive. You know, you imagine talking to your friends. I mean, you'd, you'd be sitting there like, wow, that was close. That was really close. They went out and started rejoicing. I mean, think about this. Look at verse 23. So when they were released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of the father david your servant said why did the gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things and the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the lord and against his christ for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed both herod and pontius pilate along with the gentiles and the peoples of israel i mean what are they saying they're saying god after all you have done you know, Colossians 1, 15-18 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. <coughs> he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning from the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have preeminence. It's this God who had done everything for them. And he said, the people, they don't even know how to treat you. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever you had in your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. So this prayer, as they're rejoicing God, they're praising God for all that He has done. He's the Creator. He's the Master of the universe. He's done all these things. And He says, God, we've both heard their threats to us. But you know, Lord, take care of it. Take care of it. I don't know if I'd have that. I mean, I sh- we should have that confidence. But I'm not going to stand before you. Yeah, that'd be me. Right. Yeah. I, I've seen those whips and the cats of nine tails and the thr- yeah, I don't want to be in... I, I mean, I've heard the stories of the dungeons. No, thank you. We pray for a life of ease. And God has given us a life of ease. But these guys, it says, Lord, you've heard it. 
Take note of their threats. And grant that your slaves may speak your word with all the confidence. And remember, that confidence means freedom. They felt no pressure. They felt nobody was about to throw them in jail because of what they were saying. That confidence brought a freedom. In verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 27, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. He goes, Lord, whatever you want is what we want to do. Whatever you have predestined, that's what we want to see take place. So, Lord, take care of their threats, or note of their threats. Grant that your slaves may speak your word with confidence. And while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they had prayed earnestly, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word with the word of God with confidence. I mean, here it is. Here's a guy who's been sitting lame for 40 years. Finally gets healed. And this is going on for several days. And they can't let it go. They just can't let it go. Why? Because the temple chief, priests, scribes, Pharisees, all, Sanhedrin, they want all the attention. They want all the glory. They want all the notoriety. And they're not getting it. And really, they hated Jesus. And here's guys preaching on, in his name, saying, we can't stop. And then they go out rejoicing, praising God, with all the more boldness, with all the more confidence. So five things that they did as a result of what God had done. Number one, they left to tell all their friends everything that had happened. They couldn't keep silent. They had to tell, hey, you realize this? It's like, I'm just trying to think in, in modern day vernacular what or illustration, what would this be like? So the only thing I can think of, it's like you're in a bank and all of a sudden a robber comes in and he starts shooting around. And he says, everybody on the ground, you know, give me your money. And all of a sudden the ordeal's over and you get out. Do you keep silent about it? No. If you were in there when the bank got robbed, you're telling everybody. Everybody's going to know the situation you just escaped. That's what happened. They're here. You should have seen it. Peter, I mean, and you should, John, I mean, you, John, you were there. You guys, I mean, you think about it. All the chiefs, the priests, they're, they're threatening us, and they're telling us to shut up. And, and Peter, you know, John's telling about Peter, and Peter's just like, he's just going on, he's not stopping. They had to go tell everybody. They told everybody. They didn't keep silent. Number two, they lifted up their voices to give credit and glory to God. When God answers prayer, who gets the glory? When God provides, who gets the glory? When God does miraculous things, who gets the glory? It's not because you're skilled or talented or wealthy or, you know, you did it, you know, you put all the puzzles of the pieces together just perfectly so it turned out the way you wanted it. No. That's pride and arrogance. Who gets the glory? They lifted up their voices to give credit and glory to God. Number three, they gave their worries to God. Lord, take notice of their threats. Do we give our worries to God too? I mean, we're not supposed to worry because he says, fret not thyself of tomorrow or fret not of evildoers. He tells us not to worry, but anybody perfectly followed that one? Anybody struggle with that? Hands and a foot. The reality is, it's hard to give God everything. We're self-sufficient. We like what we like. We want to fix our own problems. And God is saying, give them to me. So they gave their worries to God, the threats to God. Number four, they committed to continue speaking of God's doings. They weren't going to stop. 
Uh, they said, continue to give us more confidence that we may continually boldly speak. And then number five, they with renewed confidence and boldness went out speaking the word of God. I mean, that's pretty impressive. After they had what they had gone through and what they had witnessed God doing and what they had experienced with all the chief priests, all those guys, they said, we're more committed now than ever. I don't know about you, but when I read stories like this in God's word, it's not just a good story. It is a good story, but it's not just a good story. Everything that he puts in his word is for us to learn from, to apply to our hearts and our lives, right? It's not just, oh, well, it's another good story. On to the next one, right? It is for us to learn from, right? So what is God teaching you through the story? If something noteworthy has been done in your life because God has done it, what's been your response to it? Well, maybe way back then I used to tell my family about what Jesus was doing, but eh, they don't really want to hear about it, so I just shut up. Maybe it's time to renew that vision of saying, hey, let me tell you what God's been doing. Maybe we need to pray for opportunities. Maybe we need to go before God like they did and say, God, you saw their threats. Take note of it. But give me more boldness so I can go back out. What is it that God's teaching you through the story that you can apply to your life so that you can become more like Christ in this? It's not just a good story. It is a good story, but it's not just a good story. It's something for you to learn from and apply to your heart and your life. I don't know about you, but it's a reminder of who God is for me. That he's all-powerful. And do you realize that nothing is going to happen to you apart from God's will? If I get out in my truck and I start crossing over East Henrietta Road and somebody flies through East Henrietta and T-bones me and I die, that's not apart from God's will. You say, well, that's just just a, a sorry thing to happen. No. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God or not? If you believe in the sovereignty of God, there are no accidents, there's no happenstance, it's not coincidence. If God didn't want the storm to come, he could have moved it with a breath of his air. Either God is sovereign or he's not. Either he's in control or he's not. The bottom line is God can control every aspect of our lives, but it's easier if we give it to him rather than him trying to take it. That's just truth. It's a reminder that God's in control. God, remember, let's look back two weeks on the story. He wanted food for the day. I'm glad God didn't answer that request. Alms for the poor. Food for the day. No. God says, I'm not just going to give you food. I'm going to restore your feet so that you can walk and work for yourself every day. God has what's best in mind for us. He's in control, but it's better to give it to him than for him to have to take it. I don't know how God wants you to apply the story to your life, but I have to believe that there's something and a lesson in it for all of us. Amen? Lord, I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts. And I pray, God, that you'd help every one of us to be honest about where we're at in our walk with you. Lord, many of us, well, maybe we've known you for a long time. Maybe we've read your word and prayed and have spent time learning of you and, and developing our relationship with you. But, Lord, maybe there's some of us in this room that have not been so faithful and obedient in that area. And I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts, all of our hearts. And, Lord, if there's a change to make, might we be willing to make it? 
Lord, if there's some things that we can apply, I pray, God, that you'd help us to apply it. Because, Lord, even though it's a good story, it's not just a good story. It's something that we're to learn from. It's something that we're to apply to our own hearts and our lives so that we can become more like Christ. And I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts right now, this moment. God, I have to believe that all around the room there are those of us who can relate to aspects of this story. But, Lord, help us not just to, Lord, in our minds think about this or that, but, Lord, might we be willing to truly humble ourselves and to make things right. Not just be challenged, Lord, but to be changed by your word. So, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, beginning with mine. Thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you for what you're teaching me day by day. And, Lord, how I need you. Because, Lord, I cannot live this life apart from you. My flesh is too strong. My mind is too strong. I will fail. But, God, with your spirit, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But, Lord, help us not be afraid to stand up for what we know is right. Help us never to shy away from speaking the truth. God, may we look for opportunities to, to show you off to others who need to see your hand and work in their life. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, as we do each and every Sunday, I give you an opportunity to respond to what you've heard this morning. It's not my word, it's God's word, and but maybe God's word has challenged you in some way this morning. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, you say, Pastor, there's some stories, there are some aspects of that story that I need to apply to my own heart, my own life. Some things I need to change. Maybe I need that boldness, that confidence. Maybe I need to quit worrying about what other people think and how they're going to respond. Maybe I need to, you know, just praise you more through what you've done. You know, I've done noteworthy things in my life and I haven't really praised you for them. But whatever reason, you have things that you are saying God has spoken to you, God has challenged you, and you need to respond to him. Would you say, Pastor, pray for me? Anyone like that this morning? Yes. Yes, in the front, in the back, in the sides. Can I challenge those of you who raised your hand to take a moment and pray? Start the process right now in your own heart and your own mind before the Lord. If you need to thank Him, thank Him. If you need to repent, repent. If you need to change an action, ask God to help you change it. If you need to have boldness, ask God to give it to you. Right here, right now, while God's Spirit is speaking to you, pray. Don't walk out of here and think, oh, I'll do it later. There's no time to respond to the Spirit than the present. It's the best time. Just take a moment and pray. Ask God to teach you what He wants you to learn. And then be willing to make the changes wherever necessary. all stand to our feet as we close in prayer. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never made a profession of faith to say, I want to repent of my sins and put my faith and trust in Jesus, I would love nothing more than to talk to you about that. It's not joining a church. It's not a commitment to give. It's, it's a simple acknowledgement that I am a sinner Christ died for my sins. I repent of my sins and ask Him to be my Savior. It's simple. It's childlike faith, as God's Word says. 
but just starting point to a relationship with Him. If you don't know Him, that is the greatest decision you could ever make, is to know Him and to follow Him. Lord Jesus, as we come before You, Lord, thank You for how You work in our hearts and our lives. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the fact that, God, it's still relevant as it was hundreds and thousands of years ago. That we can still learn from it today. Lord, continue to do a work in our lives, Lord, long past this service. And as we go our separate ways this week, Lord, might we be cognizant of the fact that, Lord, You're there and that You're present with us and that you're working. And God, that we might sense your presence in all that we say and do. May we glorify you in all that we say and do, Lord. We belong to you. We are purchased with your blood, according to 1 Corinthians 6. And I ask, God, that we would live a life that is representative of that. Lord, I pray that you would just give victory this week as we go out and about. I pray, Lord, that you give us opportunities to, to reflect you and to share what you've done in our lives, Lord. And we'll praise you for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.